Welcome to Face Your Faith with West Kenyon. It is our hope that today's study will encourage you to grow deeply in your relationship with God as we study the Word together. Now let's join West for today's study. Today we are going to finish our two-part series, Fact or Fiction, and our list of supposedly biblical quotes or passages that we have made up along the way and inserted into God's Word that either don't exist or are less than accurate in their interpretation. And as we saw in part one, all of the quotes or sayings we are looking at either don't exist or are no more than a jumble of scripture to make a phrase that deserves little or no merit. And a recap from part one, I am doing this two-part series because I believe it is very important to quote God's word verbatim with no alterations unless we state clearly that we are going to paraphrase the scripture we are about to use. And should you decide to paraphrase because you can't recall chapter and verse as it is written, make sure your paraphrase is completely accurate. And if at that point you are still not 100% certain on what is going to leave your mouth, please tell the person you are speaking with that you either need to look it up or get back to them before you give them an answer. It should be noted that seldom is anyone interested in our opinions on God's word and neither is God. And if you don't have time to look it up or get back with someone, freely admit to whoever you are speaking with that you are not knowledgeable enough to continue the discussion at the moment because you need to do some further homework and you'll get back with them. And this is a great time to admit you don't know it all. And this could also provide a great opportunity to point them to a Bible, to investigate it for themselves and let God take it from there. Also, by doing this, you might be able to get someone into God's word for the first time. Should you, however, choose to be stubborn and need to sound intelligent and end up twisting God's word, and someone goes back and does check it out and finds out that you are mistaken or inserted or omitted something that doesn't exist, you will likely have lost further opportunity to have meaningful conversation with that person again. And what a waste of an opportunity that would be. With that, let's pick up where we left off last time, and we are going to look at nine additional phrases we love to use. So fact or fiction, love the sinner, hate the sin. And this is another quote that is not in the Bible. However, in this instance, we can find passages in the Bible to make this statement applicable. But nonetheless, the statement itself is not to be found in God's word. So be sure to indicate that if you use it. With that, let's take a look at the supporting scriptures that can help us make this statement work out decently in the end. Starting off with Jude 1, 22 through 23 states, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, as in respect. However, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. We see here a passage that we are to be merciful to those who doubt or deny God. But with that, we are to make sure we always tell them the truth, which will keep them from going the wrong direction. Well, hopefully anyway. And remember to do it gently and with respect. But notice our passage from Jude further tells us to hate. Yes, hate. Hate anything that is sin, evil, wickedness, but not the person. Only the actions that are not of God that is in the life of a person and point these things out to them. And that is the objective of attempting to snatch them from the fire, from going the wrong direction. Don't forget, this applies to everyone. Yes, even family and friends. 
This is not somehow reserved for those who don't profess Christ. Don't forget, we are all still very much sinners and all have plenty of sin in our lives, and that sin we should detest. Yes, we should hate it. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to call each other out humbly, gently, lovingly, respectfully, and when we wander off in areas we should not be going. And in Matthew 5, 43 through 44, that is another of many scripture passages which can support this. It says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's another example that indicates we are to love sincerely, even the people that might be doing wrong by us. But to clarify, the love we have for that person or people is not a love to condone ungodly behavior, but to love the individual alone and once again point out lovingly when they are going off track. Conclusion on our saying, love the sinner, hate the sin, is a great summary of scripture, but is not a quote from the Bible. So should you use it? If you must, but make sure you are using it with a biblical context. All right, up next, fact or fiction? God won't give you more than you can handle. And I must confess, this is one I use on occasion when teaching and counseling, and while I explain it and put it into context, After working on this message, I am going to abandon the use of this statement altogether because while it is another quote that can sort of be backed up by the scriptures, it is a very loose paraphrase of the scriptures and admittedly a little too loose for my comfort and truly not beneficial and worth repeating to potentially promote confusion. And very likely this saying came from 1 Corinthians 10.13 and that says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And it should be noted here that in the Greek, the word temptation or tempted can also be translated as tested, which is important to recognize. Now here's why the statement, God won't give you more than you can handle, can quickly get twisted if not explained properly, as in with God's own words. First, it indicates without support, the quote on its own, that we, on our own, have the ability to deal with whatever comes our way. And that is definitely inaccurate. And that is because it says you won't get more than you can handle. And that indicates you have the necessary strength and omits God from the picture. Second, it could also easily indicate that God gives us bad things in our lives that we, again, on our own, will need to conquer or have the strength to conquer. And that, too, is very inaccurate. So here's what we need to understand. God does not give us anything bad. Only good comes from God. However, he allows, which is distinctly different than giving, many things to go wrong in our lives so that we will hopefully learn and grow from the various situations we get ourselves into that we likely knew we should not have run after in the first place. That said, we need to very carefully reread the last sentence of our passage here from 1 Corinthians. And it says, but when you are tempted or tested, he, God, will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So this last sentence, I believe, is the key to the whole of the verse. First off, it tells us that we will be tempted and tested because it says, but when you are tempted, indicating it's going to happen. Next, we read, God will provide a way out so that you can endure it. 
Again, no indication of our ability to handle any of these remotely by ourselves. And our key words here are provide and can. And these two seemingly innocent and ordinary words are in fact what the entirety of this message is telling us. Our definition of provide is to do nothing more than to make something available. It is something that is supplied or given. And the word can means nothing more than the ability or option to do something, which is nothing more than our decision made with regard to an offer. So the ultimate problem with our secular quote, as it stands without explanation, is the complete lack of what we are and are not capable of, and our need to rely on God and the possibilities that God has made available to us, and the choices we get to make with what God did make available to us, and nothing we can conjure up on our own. So our passage from 1 Corinthians also makes it clear that if we do not choose to use the way out God supplies or makes available to us, we may not come out the other end in good shape. And that is the part that is up to us to a considerable degree as to whether or not we take what God is offering or do it our own way. A great example of this is found in Job. God allowed Job to go through a serious stress test And God allowed Job to be mercilessly tempted and physically afflicted by Satan. And did you hear, I said God allowed these things to happen to Job. God did not give these things to Job. Satan did that, and God allowed that to happen. But God provided Job with a way out. Job had a choice to either listen to the world or Satan and take what his wife and friends were supplying and going that route and crumble, Or Job could take what God was making available and supplying and exercising his ability and option to rely on God's provision for him. And we see in the end when Job followed what God provided and made available to him in this crazy situation worked out fantastic. Not only did Job come through it, but he was rewarded incredibly by being wise and obedient and following God's plan. Don't forget, Job did have a choice as to whether or not he would curse God or trust God. And that is you and I all day, every day, in every situation. One other unfortunate mistake we often make when we bundle the original quote and the passage from the Bible together is our misrepresentation of the word handle or endure to mean whether or not we will make it through the experience. But not enduring through a situation does not indicate necessarily you wouldn't make it as in to say, remain alive. All it is referencing is, if you don't choose the right path, and that being the path that God provides, you will certainly die. But there is also a far better chance you won't die and will instead suffer through your consequences of your disobedience. And by virtue of that, your suffering would likely be the part we were not going to endure. And how many of us are not enduring through life and all because we are not listening to God? I think the statement here, hell on earth, is a very real feeling for many who are not truly enduring. Yes, you're alive and alive enough to know it's miserable because we are not relying on God. Conclusion, God won't give you anything more than you can handle. doesn't work out very well without a sermon attached to it. So my suggestion is just to use God's word. What's next? Fact or fiction? Everything in moderation. Okay, this is one I wanted to put in part one as well, since that is where we covered the list of absolutely not in the Bible. But this one too straddles the line a bit, I feel, with a slight association with a few passages. 
reason I say that is because God does indicate there are a number of things we are to do in moderation and with modesty, such as the consumption of what we eat and drink, our appearance, how we dress, and how we speak, the words we use, and the company we keep. But our quote as it stands on its own, everything in moderation, is not at all biblical and not at all God-honoring, because God does not want the believer to participate in everything, even in moderation, which immediately negates the authenticity of the quote. In addition, moderation can't be arbitrary. It must have an established boundary. Very likely, your idea of modest and my idea of modest are going to look very different. Modest for me could be a six-pack, and no, I'm not referring to my stomach and what it looks like, and a pack of cigarettes every weekend. And your idea of modesty and moderation could be two six-packs and two packs of cigarettes every weekend. And this is why God set the bar for us on what modesty and moderation is to look like in his word, and he made it very clear. Let's take a look at the following scripture from Ephesians 5, 18 and 20, and Proverbs 23, 19 and 21. And those are the boundaries set for Christians. Do not get drunk on wine, do not drink too much wine, and do not join those who drink too much wine. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Our boundaries. Don't get drunk. Don't be a glutton. And the scriptures go further still on this and tell us we need to also live our lives in moderation for the sake of others as well. Romans 14, 20 through 21. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything, that's all food, is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. We are also told in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And this is more indication that it is not everything in moderation, because this life of ours, our bodies, are indeed rentals. Yes, it is indicating that God has lent us our lives and our bodies, so we need to honor the owner in how we treat what we have been provided. And these are the boundaries of living our lives in moderation. Again, God is not saying we can't eat and drink and do things and enjoy life. What he is telling us, however, is we need to follow rules, and ultimately these rules are ideal for us and ideal for others we claim to love. And when these guidelines are followed, we are doing what is right in the sight of God, and by that fact, we will far more than likely succeed in living well and encouraging others. Conclusion Don't use this phrase regardless of the very limited potential it might have. Just stick with what the Bible says. Now we will turn to the last few phrases that are not found in God's Word, but are close enough to pass the test if they must be used. Again, it's best not to paraphrase God's Word unless you are at a dead end on remembering chapter and verse and need a lifeline. But as I mentioned earlier, make sure you are not providing misinformation in your paraphrasing. A little advice, keep a Bible app on your phone like Bible Gateway, and if you get lost in conversation, take a second to look it up. I should also point out that the Bible Gateway app has dozens of translations, and I would recommend you stick with the ESV, NIV, KGV, which is the New King James Version, and by doing this, you will look 100% more intelligent, as I've said, than mutilating and butchering God's words. All right, next, fact or fiction? Pride comes before the fall. This one is not very accurate either in that it waters down the significance of what is being said in the Bible 
And we likely get this quote from Proverbs 16:18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So our quote says, pride comes before a fall. But as we just read in God's word, it says, pride comes before destruction. And this sounds far worse and far more serious than our quote indicates. When we think about a fall, yes, it can be lethal, but often falls are not deadly. They don't typically destroy us. But God says here, pride will lead to destruction, and it is a haughty spirit that leads to falling. So this saying does work in essence because we can translate the word haughty into being prideful. However, this passage does indeed separate these identities of the word pride and haughty and attaches two distinct definitions as to what will happen when engaging in these activities. Conclusion, use God's word. Moving on, fact or fiction, God works in mysterious ways. This is another that could have joined part one, but since it has a decent backing, I put it here. But this quote, too, is not to be found in the Bible. And our quote, God works in mysterious ways, was likely derived from Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the quote does sort of summarize this passage, but again, it does not do justice to what God's Word says. But this is another one Christians like to use, very one-sided, and it is usually only used when good things happen, not bad. It is most often tied to good statements, things like, I can't believe I found $90 laying next to the gas pump, and that's exactly what I needed to fill my tank. And when you tell someone about this unexpected beneficial find, you will likely attach to this miraculous story, God sure does work in mysterious ways. But rarely, if ever, do we hear, my car was out of gas and I didn't have a dime on me and I ended up running out of gas and stranded on the side of the road for five hours trying to get home. And very likely, you will never attach to that statement, God sure does work in mysterious ways. Consider this. Perhaps God is working in your life on the latter far more than the prior example and for a couple of reasons. For one, if you found $90 next to the gas pump, the ethical thing to do would have been turn it in to the gas station attendant. And as it relates to running out of gas and being stranded on the road for five hours, God may actually be working through that to get your attention, not to drive around without money for gas or make sure that the tank is filled prior to going on a trip so that you will learn and not potentially get yourself in an even worse predicament in the future. Maybe that is actually more of God working in the mysterious way than the prior. Perhaps we need to look more often at the negative times as God really working in our lives rather than only the good times. Conclusion, God is not as mysterious as we like to believe. God is pretty straightforward on most things. So quote God. On to our next one, fact or fiction. Spare the rod, spoil the child. And this is still another one that is not in the Bible, but an okay partial paraphrase, but one that gets quickly twisted. So be careful. And our quote likely came from Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. And here's the reason our phrase can quickly become very twisted. And that's because we turn the quote, spare the rod, spoil the child, into... God told parents to beat the sin out of their children's backside. That's what God says. And you watch. That's when these youngsters grow up right. 
These kids these days need a good whooping. And that is not what this passage is telling us at all. This passage is often twisted to the same degree as the love of money is the root of all evil, and we turn that into money is the root of all evil, which is not at all biblical. And this is another prime example of why we need to stick to God's exact words. So what is Proverbs 13:24 truly telling us? That discipline comes in many forms, but no matter the form, always needs to come in the form of love and redirection before it turns to corporal punishment. Don't like the sound of that? Sounds too weak, liberal, and patsy? Well, if that is where you are on the subject, be very, very happy that God does not follow the down and dirty quote of spare the rod, spoil the child in your life. Just keep in mind, if he did follow that quote, we would not be able to sit down for months. For some of us, years, and still others, never. But that is not at all how God operates. That is not how God disciplines us. And God spends the majority of our lives lovingly redirecting us. Inasmuch, our parental discipline should look like the discipline in which God disciplines us. After all, Christians like to claim that they strive to be like Christ. And as a parent, we need to seek to be Christ-like more than ever when it comes to the disciplining of our children. So if that is how you proclaim to live your life Christ-like, then live Christ-like and not in hypocrisy and discipline as God directs, not as you choose. Conclusion, spare the rod, spoil the child is a half-truth which renders it pretty useless, so you are better off following and quoting again God's word directly. Last two, fact or fiction, Jonah was swallowed by a whale, and everything but the last word is accurate here. Jonah 1.17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. No whale in sight. Conclusion, don't say whale, it was just a large fish. Last but not least, fact or fiction, Adam and Eve ate the apple. Once more, everything but the last word is accurate. Genesis 3 verses 2, 6, and 12 indicate the following. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good. Verse 12 says, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Conclusion, no apples in the story, just fruit, quote the Bible. And our overall conclusion, how about we just stick to the facts and quote God's word directly? And how about we stop summarizing and paraphrasing unless it is useful and perfectly accurate? And how about we start checking what we hear against God's word to make sure what we are saying is not inaccurate and potentially damaging information that we are spreading about God? I know you and I despise politicians and the media when they don't get their facts straight. And if we get as heated as we do over that, I can only imagine how much more God despises how we misrepresent and twist the facts of his word. Let's pray. Father, you have shown us a lot we need to open our eyes to. You have made it very clear that we need to think before we speak and know the facts before we regurgitate what sounds right and sweet, but in the end is wrong. Forgive us for willfully spreading misinformation about you because we did not check the facts. And forgive us for not being more diligent and interested in coming to you first to make sure we are the best representatives for you we possibly can be. And this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. <music>